and welcome to On the Game Trail Podcast. Hello guys, you're here on the Game Trail Podcast with Eric and Brian, and we have a guest named Adam, and Adam is the owner of Northern Broadheads, they're out of Australia, and they make fixed broadheads. Um, Adam, if you want to just go ahead and kind of like tell us uh, a little bit about your Northern Broadhead company and how you got all got started. Sure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Um, Northern Broadheads, all right. So originally, so we're going back nearly 10 years now, um, where I'm from in, in northern Australia. We're in a small town. We had a very small bow store, and it was difficult to get quality broadheads of any description. We could order in stuff from America. With the exchange rate now, it was obviously quite expensive for us. So being that we could go out on a weekend and, and take, you know, maybe a dozen or two dozen arrows and use them on wild pigs and stuff, um, we were burning through broadheads and obviously it was an expensive hobby. So I started looking into making my own just for myself and some friends and it grew from there. So we made a 175 with a steel ferrule first and we just all used that for for uh, probably a year or so and then people started asking oh can we get some more for them for another friend and and it sort of just accidentally grew and then the stores started asking and then we you know dabbled with different weights and then we went back and started with 100 grain and then the 125 and the 150 and and away it went it was just it what certainly wasn't meant to be a um a business it was just something that we could we could get hold of a couple of dozen broadheads and go and use them on a weekend, and, and here we are. Well, hey, you know, that's that's uh, fortunate for you guys that you found something that was uh, just a couple of friends messing around, and it turned into a nice business, you know? Yeah, it was, like I said, it was a, a sort of a long, slow process, but because it grew organically and, and, and it wasn't intentional, I guess, back then, um, we didn't really notice, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, certainly wasn't work it was kind of exciting to to scribble down on paper and with with mates you go and hunt and you'd say okay well we could improve this broadhead we could do this we can thicken the blade we can widen the diameter and then sometimes we'd go too wide and they wouldn't fly properly out of compound bows and so we'd go back to the drawing board so it was kind of fun and obviously a massive learning curve at the same time oh yeah i'm sure it was i mean uh what made you decide to go with a a two blade like you like you're doing compared to any other type of broadhead was it just easier to make um first of all well back then yes cost definitely two blade was more cost effective but because we hunt predominantly in this part of the world's wild boar and they're pretty big tough customers um and penetration is a huge issue in two blades by far whether you know they they just they would go you get pass-throughs on big bores, we tried three blades and four blades, and sometimes they wouldn't even get through the the shoulder pad on a big bore. You know, there's inch or two inches of gristle, and they just simply wouldn't get through. So it was hands down a two blade for us in this part of the world is um is what we use. And you know, and big stuff like buffalo, wild cattle, like big scrub bulls and stuff. Um, so we found that a nice wide cutting diameter. A strong stainless steel blade uh, would, and as long as it was super sharp, that was obviously the key. We were getting huge success with it, so that's what we stuck with, and that's what we've run with ever since. So on on that blade, how how thick are the are your actual broadheads? So the stainless blade, all this, the all the models we've got, they're all the same thickness. So they're one point two millimeters. And in I couldn't tell you what that is in inches, so we could I could no, Google that's it. Fine. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> but okay. It, it's thick. It's thick. Like you can put the broadhead, hold it by the ferrule, screwed onto an arrow, and push against it, and it won't flex. Like it's there's a lot of strength nice. there. So there, that's good. And, you, and that's what you need is a good durable broadhead, especially like you said, you know, shooting through the shoulder of a boar and through that thick hide. You you can't have something too thin because it's just going to bend or break. You know. Yeah. They, and we we bought a lot of stuff and tried it and and you know if you hit them in the soft bit like any animal it wasn't an issue it just zip straight through but if if you encountered rib or an angled shot the deflection um, shoulder bone scapula anything like that we we're running into big trouble so we had to thicken the blade um, but then weight becomes an issue because you know if you do a big thick wide blade and then you 
your feral size comes down, so you need to keep the strength in the feral. So it was it was a quite a tricky process to get um, what we did, and the, and the 175 was a result of that. So we went to a solid steel feral and then vented the blade so we could keep a big wide cut, but we vented also for flight. So, you know, nowadays out of 80-pound compound, which is pretty common here, um, they fly dead. They fly true out to whatever distance you can shoot, no, 80 so, yards, 100 yards, it doesn't matter. Well, that's good. So a, a lot of people, they're always shooting their bows and, you know, and all that practice. They're sitting there shooting with the fill point. You know, let's just say the 100 grain. That That's what I shoot. I shoot 100 grain, you know. So mm-hmm. I have the 100 grain uh, fill point on and I target practice, target practice. And then when it gets start closer to the hunting season, I throw on that broadhead. Is there much change between your broadhead and a field point, or does it pretty much? Uh... No, that, look, they'll fly true. Um, I've had a couple, maybe two, that that's that come to mind with guys that group slightly left and down with, um, like our biggest blade that we make is our 150, traditional 150. It's a really big blade, but uh, and out of a fast compound, I've, I had two instances where they grouped a couple of inches low to the left. Um, and they were running three two-inch blazer veins, and so we suggested them to try four, and it fixed it. You know, it was, that was all it was. So um, generally, no. Like, you know, there's always the, the there's always instances where it may happen. You know, someone might get a little bit shooting low or something. But like you said, if you shoot field points and then time to hunt, and you screw on the your broadheads. Well, then. You may need to to slightly adjust or tune your bow so they fly, you know, dead true, right. dead okay. perfect. Now, whenever you put on on your broadhead, is there a lot of tuning you need to do with your arrow and that broadhead, or do they does it end up no. tuning very well? Yeah, you shouldn't have to do anything if you shoot a nice. one twenty, or if you like yourself, if you shoot a hundred grain field point. Yes. Um, you can you can screw a hundred grain straight in and it'll be fine particularly nice. our 100 grain because it's an inch cut it's not a our standard size of inch and a quarter so the the 100 grain is a little bit smaller um but it's designed for you know really high speed people that want to shoot long distance but like the idea of a fixed fixed blade so if you know if, if you're going to put something through the ribs of a big elk or something i'd be leaning on a fixed two blade so this that's what we built the 100 grain for slightly smaller diameter uh, and they just fly like darts. Like, there's never been an issue. I've never heard of an issue with a hundred grain. Adam, what would you compare down in Australia to um, something like here in the U.S. that we hunt? Would you say like the the stag kind of similar to our elk? Yeah. So the red stag. We actually get elk. Oh, not we do. In in New Zealand, they get elk and they call them wapiti. So they're the same critter you guys have um but they they crossbreed with the red stag so you get a hybrid out of it they're still a huge animal don't get me wrong they're still you know and they live in some pretty gnarly sort of country but in the mainland here in australia we get our red stag and he's he's this is our version of the elk you know they roar that you can get them you can call them right in they run with big groups of hinds it's it's full on when you get a roaring stag at you know inside twenty yards and he's bellowing at you and you're bellowing at him. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sure it's exciting, it's, man. It's, yeah, man. Oh yeah, that's, cool. that's one of our dream hunt, or at least my dream hunt is to go out there and hunt red stag. It, it's something on my list that I yeah, they're just it's just another do. cool animal. You know, it's like our elk. You know, and it's just like oh yeah, I want to shoot a stag so bad. It's oh yeah yeah, come on down. We got lots of them, plenty. <laughs> um, I also noticed. On your Instagram, for those that are listening, um, if you want to check out Adam's uh, broadheads, they're under Instagram under Northern Broadheads, and of course that's also his uh, your uh, webpage, right? Have you found any other social media besides Instagram? Um, sorry, did you just say social media? It's a little bit hard to hear then. Yeah, uh, social media. Are you? I know you're on Instagram. Are you on anything other than Instagram? Um, or is it your primary? Yeah, I used to. We used to do Facebook as well but um we just found that you know most traffic most interaction was instagram so we've slowly migrated to instagram only um i I, we may go back to facebook i don't know what's going to happen with it um so for now we just concentrate on instagram we've just started a youtube channel as well 
Uh, there's only a few posts on that at the moment, but as the field staff and people get out and start to film hunts, and we've got a fair bit of that happening this year, we should start to see lots of smaller clips posted up on YouTube. Is the YouTube uh, link the same, the Northern Broadheads? Yes. Okay, perfect. Uh, yeah, it is. So back on your broadhead, I noticed on, on some of your, on the different ones, you know, you have the, uh, well, they're all interchangeable blades, correct? Yes, yes, so, correct. Yep. Which, is, which is nice. So that way, um, you know, you start shooting that one, that inner shaft is going to be solid. And if you need to replace a blade, you know, you just have to do that instead of buying a whole new pack. Or you if know? you have a bad shot. Or if you're a bad shot <laughs> and you hit a tree and you hit a tree or rock. Yeah. You know, we, we all done that plenty of times. Um, I've, well, Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say the interchangeable blade thing came about, uh, because we, it was, it was hard for us to get machine parts. So we, we start with a base ferrule and then we'd change the blade. So we, all the blades are thick, same thickness, but we change the length, the tip, you know, we play around with it, keeping the same, feral so we could interchange and, and kind of experiment without having to go back to the machine shop and get new parts made wait six months or three months whatever so again it was wasn't meant to be that they all just fit each other but as it turns out they do you can pull out the say the single bevel uh 135 with an aluminum ferrule you can pull that blade out and put it in the steel steel ferrule from the 200 grain and you can get a single bevel 200 so over time, we refine the size weights of the blades. So when you interchange them, they, they come back with a an even number for, for weights, you know. So we'll, you stick around the 25-grain increments and you can swap and mess around with a whole heap of them and come up with different broadheads. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Adam, if, um, like, using your practice, like, say a guy buys a pack of uh, broadheads off of you and you have that one for, you know, practicing and making sure you're, you're dead on with the broadheads, is it pretty easy to sharpen the broadhead back up? Super easy. So we made them out of a blend of, of stainless steel. That's um, it's it's they come sharp. Like if you just open the pack, and screw them on, you can go and shoot straight through an elk, or you know they're designed for that. But they're really easy to resharpen or touch up. So I kept them shy of of shaving sharp, like just just before it. So you could shave your arm with it. But it's a little bit of effort. You've got to put a bit of weight on the blade out of the pack because I was, I don't know, I was always worried about people grabbing them and cutting themselves. But, I mean, I guess it is a broadhead. So for myself, people that shoot traditional archery or, you know, people that are particular about a sharp blade, which every hunter should be because it's it's uh, it's the key to, um, you know, to success really with broadheads. If you just touch them on a diamond stone or a strop, uh, I use a paper wheel. I just do one touch on each side of a paper wheel before I put them into my broadhead box. They're, they're dangerous. They're like scalpels. Yeah. That's nice to know because a lot of guys, you know, your broadheads are, to be honest, are, are pretty reasonably priced. But even then at that point, um, it's nice to be able to know that you can touch up really easy and you can go right out and start hunting without having to buy another pack or... Yeah, you know. I mean, it's it's a common it's a common difficulty with... You know, a lot, a lot of people don't know or don't have the time to sit down with six broadheads or 12 broadheads and sit there at the camp or before you go and, and hone them perfectly. It's it's not that easy. So yeah, what we've done, we've put the, uh, an edge on it um, and you really only have to just do one touch. And if you shoot through something and you get it back and it's fine, you spend a couple of minutes on a stone and it's perfect again. So, But it was it's a tricky one between the becoming too brittle and too soft of a blade so again it's just been a process over the years and we've slowly improved the the grade of stainless so a it's strong and b it can be resharpened easily yep. yeah um for those that are for the guys that are listening there's a i was looking through your instagram there's a picture of uh, someone holding up a the fat and the skin of a boar and with your blade next to it and you can realize yep. you know when you guys go out, out there in australia or hunting these big boars and you're like, okay, that's a lot of fat and skin to get through. And when you relate that to, you know, stag or elk here or mule deer, shouldn't have a problem with the uh, penetration, right? No, and it's it's um, 
you know, especially now with the podcast that everyone's talking about broadheads and you've got Aaron Snyder who's, I mean, he's great because he's not, he doesn't take any sides. He just uses equipment and picks it to pieces and says, if it's good, it's good, it's bad, it's bad. So there's a lot of talk at the moment about broadheads, which one should you use, which one should you stay away from. Um, and at the end of the day, you're exactly right. Like we built a head to take on a wild boar. Now, skin, gristle, toughness, all that, pound for pound, I don't think there's anything out there that's anywhere near as tough as a wild boar. No, We've got no, the Asiatic sure. water buffalo, and they're huge, and they've got thick skin, but I still don't think they're as tough as a boar. Um, so we built these heads for the worst-case scenario. So when you, if you step back in skin thickness and build and, and you know, like let's a deer from a moose down to a whitetail, they're quite thin-skinned, you know. They're not yeah. – they might be a tough animal. They might be a tough critter, you know. They might be stubborn and don't want to go down and stuff like that. But, man, they're a soft-skinned animal. And, and if you put that in anywhere in the boiler room, they're going to die, you know. As long as it's sharp, that's such a – that's such an important factor that a lot of people overlook. You know, you, you've got to have a super, super sharp broadhead. Yeah. Um, but they are, I'm not saying they're, they're weak or anything because they take some putting down, but they are generally a thin-skinned game animal. If you, yeah. if you take time and put it in the right spot, man, they're going to die. Yeah, yeah. No. It, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you go. Uh, what, what I think was interesting in because the broadhead market has gotten really big. Like there's so many to choose from now. But what's interesting yeah. is what I've noticed and Brian, even yourself can contest this, you know, at one point it seemed like the market was getting really uh, fancy with how many blades, putting four and five blades on there and twisting them in circles. And now it seems like the industry is going back to the basics almost like, but the, the two bladed um, broadhead seems to be, starting to pick up some momentum and popularity and, and it's very simple and I like that simplicity. Right? I don't want something complex. Just something nice and simple that gets the job done. I think a lot of guys like that. What is your opinion about, I mean, obviously you have a two-headed broadhead, but is that why you went that uh, route or just? No, I think you just nailed it. Um, like I just finished at the ATA show and I was, I'm still shocked at, at how well the reception was for my, for our style of broadhead. Uh, yeah, I'm the same as you. I'm just used to seeing, you know, most of Americans hunt with expandables, um, three blades, four blades, and it's not something that's ever been super popular down here in Australia. Um, the thing, I guess, we don't have the amount of hunters that you guys do, but we have basically open slather, which means if you've got access to private property and there's animals on there, you can just, providing it's okay with the landowner, you might shoot 20 pigs for a weekend or, or 20 goats or you know, half a dozen meat animals, deer, and maybe a buck. Or so so you, we get to do a lot of hunting. We, we kill a lot of animals that we have the opportunity to. Um, so it's it's kind of, I find it quite weird how we've, we've gone on our own path and always use two-blade broadheads. And it, it depends who you talk to, but, you know, they, they just do the job. And we predominantly weight, more weight up front than most traditional U.S. hunters with compound bows. Now everybody, a, a standard run-of-the-mill load here used to be 70-pound bow, 300 grain, a uh, 300 spine arrow with a 125 grain on the front. That was the standard go-to. Now that's shifting to 70, 75, even 80-pound bow, um, 250 spine arrow with a 150 on the front, or even 175. So when I got to the ATA show, I was. I had guys coming up to me saying, man, we've been using your 200 grains for whitetail. And I'm like, say what? Like, it was awesome to hear. Like, I was, I just did not expect it. People were saying, yeah, they're great. They blow straight through. And and then as the week progressed, more and more people, like you said, uh, it feels like there's a shift. Even though you've got millions of people that love their animals and they have a purpose, absolutely. Like, I'd, I'm never going to knock another broadhead. But you've got... It feels like there's a shift for people to go back to, or not necessarily go back, but try and dabble with a, a two-blade cut and contact, weight a little bit more weight forward, a little bit FOC, um, and the, the success rate of, you know, it's just skyrocketing. I mean, I listened to an interesting uh, podcast the other day, and they were talking about the, the foot-pound energy uh, an expandable needs 
when it hits the skin to open up and then continues on its path compared to a sharp two blade. And it's mind blowing. Like we're talking a sharp broadhead through the, say a sharp two blade broadhead through the, say just behind the shoulder, only takes a couple of pound of pressure before it can continue on its path. Well, some expandables take up to 60 pound before they can get through that um, engage their blades or whatever they do before they continue. So you've lost 90, 99% of the, the energy of your bow before it even gets in near, near a vital organ. So I was yeah. shocked when I heard it. Yeah, um, and, and I think um, we kind of talked about in one of our last podcasts about how, I don't know if you experienced this down in Australia, but bows have gotten tremendously fast. And now guys are dialing them back and really – um, instead of going for speed, they're going for weight on their arrow. That way they, yeah. they um, transfer that kinetic energy into the animal rather than just completely blow through. And, and I don't know if you experienced this, and we have a couple times with the arrows being so fast, uh, they blow through, and, and sometimes you don't hit a vital organ, and that's all it is is just a blow through, and, you're, and your animal's gone, and you never find it ever again. And so I don't know if you saw that trend down in Australia. It sounds like you guys were, already were on to it, you know, really heavy weighting your arrows to, to pack that, you know, that punch that you're sending down, down the field. Well, I mean, the, the good thing about the new bows, um, you know, having that, that grunt behind me, the advantage is you can fling a heavy arrow because it's all about momentum. You know, it's all about, like I, like I said, I shoot traditional archery and it's all about the heavy arrow. Your bow's quieter. Um, you know, if you've got a, let's say, for example, you've got an 80 pound Hoyt, well, Instead of flicking 450 grain arrow setup, try 550. You know, step it up. It's still going to be so fast, and if you can get extra weight on the head or distributed through the arrow shaft with the new heavy GPI shafts, um, man, you this you know it's just so much better. It's such more efficient when it hits that animal and just keeps on going. You know, it's um it's to to uh, to me it's a no-brainer. It's like well you throw a stick at something or you throw a spear, you know, you get that weight behind it. And the advantage of these new bows is you can, you don't have to just have a light, a light setup. You can still have heavy. It's still going quick. Like it's going super quick. With, a, so, with some you know, weight behind it. Yeah, man. It's, it's, yeah. um, Oh yeah, it's, it's good. <laughs> it's good to see. Well, it's cool to hear from. For, so for guys that are listening, that want to check you out, that, that you guys do get to hunt all year round, unlike us, you know, it's seasonal and I'm sure you're aware that, you know, it's all in draw. So you may put in like here, we're at in New Mexico, we put in for, you know, eight different types of game. More likely we'll probably only draw one animal or two animals, a game species. And that's all we get to hunt. So for guys that are listening, you know, when you said that you get to hunt all year round and really, you know, I mean, you guys have put this broadhead through the ringers big time on on big game and so i think that's pretty yeah. cool and shows that it's proven you know yeah well you have to i mean you know you can't take something to market that's it's semi okay because it'll get picked to pieces pretty quick and people will <laughs> people yeah. will let you know so oh, yeah. like our new they do yeah our new evo that's just come out our, our cnc solid you know the one piece head with the dimpled surface um, that's been five years in the making, uh, testing, playing around with it. That, they'll be on the market and available probably in a couple of months by the time we sort out the outlets and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, it's a perfect example. We built a CNC head. We tried lots of different ideas. We've stayed away from a Tanto tip. Um, we've gone to a, to a direct point, you know, people asking why would you, would you do such a thing and not have a Tanto tip? Well, if you've got a, a, a say a, quarter, a, a sharp a steep quartering away shot on a bull elk and he's he's feeding or something like that and you've only got that small window, well, a tanto tip. I'm not saying it always does, but if you hit a rib or hit something a little bit beyond that soft bit behind the shoulder, there's a chance with a tanto tip and the angle of the blade that it can deflect and just run along, skim and just fly off to the side. If you've got a needle point, it's got um greater chance of, of sticking in that skin and then continuing on its path. So we we steered away from the Tanto, went to the needle point, but we reinforced that tip quite thick, um, you know, so it bites. As soon as there's contact, it bites and, and 
leads the broadhead into into the um, hopefully through the vitals. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm looking at it right now, and it's it's a pretty pretty wicked blade. And it, what's cool about it is you have it's going to come in a huge variety of uh, weights from 100 to 300 grains. So that gives guys a tremendous amount of options to to outfit their bow. Yeah. So you've got the the 100 grain again is is the only exception out of the whole lot that's slightly narrower. Uh, we've gone back to just an inch and an eighth cut, and that's purely to, to offer someone that, that's uh, not quite converted to the two-blade but wants to try them, let's say, for example, this season on, on mule deer or something, and, they, and they're used to using expandable, and they want to shoot 50 yards. Well, this thing, will, you know, it'll fly true out to as far as you can shoot, um, but it's tough enough to it'll get through anything. It'll break bones. It'll break scapulars and shoulder blades and, um, sorry, shin bones. It'll break anything um but it'll still fly really nice for for a small blade so we kept the 100 grain a little bit smaller and the rest of them all the way up to 300 grain will be an inch a quarter cut yeah dimpled surface same principle as a golf ball or the bottom of a surfboard you know reduce friction airflow yes it's only minute when you when you're shooting between the bow and the target but it's still a factor and then when you hit liquid or, or anything, the, f- the friction reduction is quite amazing with that, with that dimpled surface. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think everything, when it comes down to it, has to count, especially in bow hunting, because even just the slightest, um, especially when you start getting out beyond 20 yards, if you're shooting at like six, a 60-yard target, you know, all those little minute uh, details come to matter, you know, if you're just off by a little bit. And yeah, any oh, any advantage is a good advantage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep, that is true. Um, down in Australia, you guys usually what's more popular, uh, traditional bow or or compounds? Oh, definitely compound by a long shot here. Okay. Um, yeah, the trad's growing rapidly. Uh, you know, it's it's, and I think a lot of people, and it's the same with the U.S. people that 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 are the messages that I'm getting is a lot of people dabble with it you know they practice and they have fun shooting it but when it comes to hunting season it's like man i've only got one tag yeah uh, or i've got two tags you know and that's all i've got for another 365 days um what am i do what's what am i going to do my odds are in my favor if i take the wheelie bow or do i take the trad so yeah and i get that that's that's where a little bit it's a bit different here you you, you sit around the fire and sometimes have a chat with aussie hunters and they're like oh man they just you know the guys in America always go back to the wheelie bar. It's like, well, hang on a minute. We can just, if we miss, we can go back tomorrow. Well, you know what I mean? We get many opportunities. So there's, there's trad communities growing, definitely growing here in Australia. Um, but we still don't have that many as per se. Yeah. And that's the feeling I get in the, in the US as well, is that the sport of traditional archery is growing again. Like there's a resurgence in it for sure. Oh yeah. Whether, whether it takes people a couple of seasons to be confident enough to to hunt with it um i mean that's just personal you know it doesn't matter anyway it's like whatever suits you but it's definitely it's definitely on the uprise for sure and and it's surprising you know i say to people it's probably been five years six years since i've done full-time traditional and I say to people, it's surprising if you carry your stick bow only. It's it's you'll be pleasantly surprised at how often you can close that gap to to your shooting distance. You know, like say for me, I don't shoot anything beyond 30 yards. That's just the way I hunt. So if you get to 40 and you go, oh, that's it. It's 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 pleasantly surprising how often you can close that gap and, and get to 28, 26, 20. You know, when yeah. you know that you have to. So. Um, yeah, it's another kettle of fish, the old trout archery, but it's you just stick with it. <clears throat> yeah. Stick with it. It definitely makes it a heck of a lot more exciting too, knowing that you got to close that that distance or that gap to be able to get in there, you know. And that's what I love about bow hunting is I'm not a hundred, two hundred yards away. You know, I have to get as close as I can to make that good, comfortable shot and make that shot count. You know, and being able to do that with a bow is is awesome and now i shoot a compound i don't shoot the traditional and i've tried i just i i am not good at it at all i can't hit a target 20 yards in front of me you know and i'm like the target's right there but i could pretty much 
split arrows with the compound, you know. But when yeah, it comes yeah. down to a traditional, it's just I am not good, and it's just something that I believe I just need to pick up a bow and practice. You do, and you know, you get a light poundage bow. You you go to someone that that first of all you find a store that that somebody that shoots it and knows what they're talking about, and they set you up. You don't have to spend a whole heap of money on a good bow, you know, and. You, and you start in the 40s, you might start with a 42 pound or something and just practice on your own and with with a bit of coaching with some good form and learning how to tune your arrow first up. And it's not that difficult. You know, people go, oh, I can't get it tuned and that. Well, it's there's a few different methods to do that, but it's actually not that difficult. Once you pick one and try it a couple of times, you can tune an arrow into a, to a new bow or a new, say, a new weighted arrow. You can tune it on. It probably takes less than half an hour or maybe half an hour to get it right. So, And then you just shoot till you're comfortable. You know, you start stepping out one yard, two steps at a time. Out to, all of a sudden you're at 20, then you're at 25. Um, and then you're like, man, I could I could probably go and take myself my first animal with it. And when you do, that's when you're in trouble. It's all over. You're hooked. I could imagine. That's, that's when it all changes. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine hunting like stag in the rut. It's kind of like hunting elk in the rut. Once you hunt a rut, hunt the rut with a with a bow. That's all you want to do now. That's all I want to do. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're saying you're no good at it. Well, I I don't think I'm any good at traditional archery at all. But I'm just persistent because I like it. And I've I miss I don't know. I wouldn't know a percentage, but you know, some weekends I can go out and see thirty wild boar and and get ten. You might miss five and not get a shot at the other ones, and and you every time you think, man, if I had my wheelie bow, I probably would have got every one of them. But <laughs> when you finally nail a big boar, it's like there's nothing like it, you know. It's 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 certainly um a next it's the next level for hunting, you know. And yeah. it's but it's not for everyone. It's just you know you've got to enjoy it. You don't you don't do it just because other people are doing it, and and it seems like the right thing to do. You've you've got to get out there and, and thoroughly enjoy it it's our passion it's our pastime it's our it's our lifestyle really yeah yeah for sure for sure so out there in australia how many species of animals do you guys actually get a hunt right so if we start from the top top of australia and work our way south so we've got the asiatic water buffalo uh, in, in the northern territory it's sort of restricted to all that swampy country up through there uh then we've got there's feral donkeys there's wild camels feral everything we hunt here is introduced by the way so everything is classed as feral down here we don't have any native game animals so we've got the buffalo the camel the donkey wild dogs um wild boar we've got goats foxes rabbits cats and then we move down further south and we've got our deer species start so we've got chittle deer or axis deer we've got rooster deer we've got samba deer we've got hog deer red deer or red stag um where am i fallow deer i think that's it that's pretty good uh, yeah 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 that's a pretty good sort (laughs) there's a there's a lot to hunt you know and and I guess predominantly the eastern seaboard, maybe inland a quarter of the way. If you if you were to look at a, a rough map of Australia and, and look down the eastern seaboard, and come in a quarter of the the width of it. That's where most of our hunting takes place. And there's a lot of halfway down the continent, um, you've got a lot of high ranges and scrubby stuff. I wouldn't call it alpine. There is a bit of alpine stuff there with the sand, believe, but it's fairly accessible, fairly open compared to um, you know, say New Zealand, for example, is, is huge, it's tall, it's <laughs> it's rough going in some parts. But we've got a lot of animals, we certainly do. And if, oh, oh, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, which animal is your favorite one, your favorite species to hunt? Oh, that's or, the, or the most one. challenging? Uh, one of the most challenging with a bow would certainly be the axis deer or chittle deer. They're just... Um, they're in really open country, and it's not so much that the animal itself is. It's, it's usually a mob, and there can be 50, 80 animals in a mob. So you've got so many eyeballs. If you can, if you can find a, a lone stag that goes and beds down under a tree for the day or for a couple of hours or something, 
it's your best chance at, at a spot and stalk. Um, you know, it's it's sort of, I guess it's what you grow up with, but hunting wild boar, hunting pigs is, you just never get tired of it. You never get sick of it. You can you can shoot a dozen one weekend and by Thursday you can't wait to get back up there and do it again. You know, there's just something about them. So maybe because you get a lot of opportunities too. Maybe it's, you know, something like that. But, yeah. oh, man, yeah. they're all good. Every, every hunt's an adventure. So, so you said that there's camels and you could actually hunt the camels out there? Yes. Have yep. you they, have you taken a camel? Yes, I have. Um, yeah, for awesome. the meat, the meat's incredible. <laughs> yeah. The meat is is amazing. Um, so again, on private land, you know, they they introduce them to eat. They eat a lot of noxious weeds that that our that cattle and stuff don't eat. So thistles, for example, you know, thorny oh. bushes and stuff. The right. camels will actually eat it and control it to a certain degree. Um, but then they breed and breed and breed, and, and all of a sudden the property owner's got an issue with camels, with water holes and stuff. So um, there's limited numbers. Like you can't just open slather. You know, some right. places where they do they they do government controlled aerial programs if they get out of hand in in state parks and stuff. Um, but sort of in my part of the world, you know, there's properties you can you can ring and say, hey, do you mind if I come out and I just want one for for meat? They're like more than happy for you to go and bowl one over if you can get close because it's pretty open and arid. Um, but, yeah, they're cool. They're good fun to hunt. Oh, heck, yeah, that would be a blast. Um, so you're saying the meat is excellent. What would you compare that meat uh, taste to to, like, any other um, game animal, you know, like to the uh, to the stags or to... The... Yeah. No, it's... Well, I, the test was my wife because she, she'll eat <laughs> well-prepared game meat uh, doesn't want to know the the history of the hunt or the gory details. So <laughs> I had um, the backstrap of camel and I trimmed it up, up and I was like, man, that just looks like marbled beef. So I thought, okay, I'm going to run the gauntlet here and I cut it into two big steaks and I cooked it. And she didn't even bat an eyelid. Flint, she goes, wow, that was incredible steak. I'm like, yeah, it was. Do you want to know where it came from? She goes, not particularly. <laughs> I was like, it was camel. And she, oh, the man. look on the face was like, what? And then I was surprised. She's like, can we get more? Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. Yeah, we've got lots more. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's very similar to beef. Nice. Yeah. What's funny is about that whole thing is uh, we went on a bear hunt about four or five years ago, yeah, and here like in that. the U.S., people are, are real kind of hesitant to eat bear, and you know, so we shot them, got it all butchered up, and we're putting in you know all sorts of different like spaghetti and other meals that took ground up type meat, and no one batted an eye. Until about a year later, I'm like, "Yeah, you guys were eating bear," and no uh-huh. one was mad or upset. They were just like, "Well, I guess I like bear now." <laughs> yeah, they're think... shocked because you hear the oh, yeah. horror story: bear, it tastes horrible. It tastes horrible. But when you don't know what you're eating, you know it. It, it tastes good. You just you, oh, you it's don't good. know. We we had some black bear the last time I was out. Uh, when I was in Colorado, and it was amazing in a casserole. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'd eat it every day of the week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is good. It's good stuff, you know, and it's just like all the species, you know. And like you're saying, you kind of test it with your wife, and I do the same thing, you know. I, <laughs> I could have an elk, deer, antelope, you know, oryx, stuff like that. And if I don't tell my wife what it is until after, you know, I ask her, you know, how was that? Did it taste good, you know? And she'll, yeah, it's a little gamey or or whatever, but... Lately, all the animals I have, her favorite one is antelope, you know. And yeah, oh, yeah. She just, she wants me every year. She's like, oh, man, you better kill yourself an antelope this year because I love that meat, you know. And you know, makes me happy I'm, because I'm, then I get to go hunting because I know that she wants yeah, me to yeah. get one. So I'm like, oh, sweet, I get to go. It's the perfect excuse for what you love to do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I've read sometimes, you know, some people say antelopes like the, the gamiest or the, or the worst of all the American game animals to eat. And I'm like, man, um, we had, I shot a buck and we ate it that night. Like it was in full rut, uh, antelope, uh, prong on buck. And mm-hmm. we ate it that night. It was some of the most amazing tender um, game meat I've ever had. You know, yeah, I don't I'm know with why, you on that. I, yeah, it was just like I know you, it's funny when you hear the people saying that they don't like the taste of antelope and you're like, I don't understand 
you know yeah, did you have saying. a bad experience with it did you you know but to me it's phenomenal meat oh it's, yeah it's I'm sure it's, you know um, this too Adam it has come down to I think it comes down to as we always say on how you take care of the meat from the time of the kill you know a lot of guys you know wait until they go back and camp to skin it and I think it just depends on your weather conditions but here where we're allowed to hunt antelope it's pretty warm and so you know we're real big on getting the skin off getting it dried and getting on getting it cooled down and that's I think the key but yeah, antelope I think out of all the game I've eaten so far and at least in the US uh, yeah. best meat has a you know if you could give it a, a flavor kind of a sweet taste you know yeah I mean it's the same with where we are it's, it's like very hot we're in the tropics here so um, so I shot a rooster, a hind or, or a doe last week for meat and I wasn't sure I was going to get one but it's so warm here that we had to take a big cooler box, a big esky with block ice in it and it, I ended up getting two. So the first thing we do is you know, gut them, prepare the carcass, leave the skin on, put them in there and pack it with ice and leave it overnight before you do anything to, to bring that temperature right down and then we process it 24 hours later and... Um, Man, it's good, but you, yeah, it's. I think people, it's it's kind of cool nowadays. There's a big push and a movement towards, you know, there's is so much is as much focus on the meat as there is the trophy, which is I think is a brilliant thing for hunting. But treat that like take it seriously. You're going to get that carcass. There's, there's nothing on there to waste. You know, um, that new Steve Ranella, the meat eater cookbook. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's for anyone that's not sure about what to do with meat or even from processing, but all the way through to cooking. And if you're not sure, get that book. A friend just bought it for me and I've been cooking game meat forever. And I thought I, I thought I had an idea until I read some of those recipes, man. It's just, it's next level. Like we did, we did ribs with this thing the other night and I've had a pretty bad history of cooking venison ribs. And I think I just eat them because they're venison ribs and I make myself chew through them and they're not great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I followed the recipe out of the book the other day, and I had friends here that have never tried venison. One of them was a, pre- a pregnant vegetarian, and they loved it that much that they decided they're going to eat red meat, but it has to be venison from now on. You know, that was just wow. – I, fo- I followed the recipe exactly how he said to slow cook it. You know, Don't get fancy with it. Just put it in with water, salt and pepper, a bit of stock. Rub it down, put it back on the hot coals, and it was just like – seriously the most amazing ribs i think i've ever had yeah we've been um this year this past hunting season we got into uh they call it the rib roll because a lot of times we leave leave the the rib meat out there because it's not required to take back and Mm -hmm. not that we didn't want to a lot of times we're at it's just so far to hike in it's just not worth taking the rib meat or the ribs back and basically what the rib roll is you're just cutting along the ribs and you're rolling the meat off the ribs kind of like in a like carpet pull that off and realize how much one how much meat we were missing out on and then two it's good meat and grind it and all that stuff and and it's a lot of meat that we're that we ourselves were missing out on and we're glad that we yeah we learned how that process worked and it's been working out pretty good yeah we've we've done that on our our past few animals where we were able to to harvest and (coughs) excuse me being able to get so much more meat out of them and I mean, to the point that we're barely leaving anything for the the birds and the coyotes and stuff like that to scavenge on, you know, because we pretty much stripped that oh, whole yeah, entire so animal. Oh, yeah, there's so much good stuff. Yeah, there's yep. a lot of meat what a lot of people leave behind. And I see it a lot, you know, because I do some taxidermy work and they bring me a head and they cut like half the neck off and they bring me the head with half the neck and I'm like, what are you guys doing? There's, t- you know... 10 pounds of meat what you guys missed out on right here yeah exactly and it's it's so sad you know you're like ah oh, if you guys only knew on how much meat you're wasting i mean there's good roast in the neck and stuff like that where you could pull off you know um, i mean even even the ribs you know along the sternum there and a lot of people cut the ribs and leave the sternum it's kind of there's not a lot of meat when you look at it but these rooster that we get are an average size deer so probably like a the same profile the same size as a mule deer and um you can cut through the sternum quite easily like i use a ryobi jigsaw (laughs) and just rip through the sternum but then when you separate the ribs in twos or threes you can actually 
with a sharp knife, you can cut down through the knuckle and take that portion of sternum. And when you that all turns, you know, because you slow cook it for six hours or whatever, that's all edible. Like you can eat that bottom bit, and it's so delicious. It's so yeah, like you said, there's not much gets wasted on an animal, and if you've got the ability to take the the gizzards, you know, the inside of it as well for your liver and the heart. I mean, all good, and and it's. I mean, it's part of the process, isn't it? It's. Yeah. I enjoy it just as much as um as anything. You know, spend the day with your mates, and you cut up, and you make sausages and mince, and and um prepare all the cuts and stuff. So yeah, it's cool. It's, yeah. It's really good. Yeah, we got uh this past season we got into uh making smoked sausage with the all the just the leftover stuff that you can't really find something to put it into. So we've been grinding it up and uh, making summer sausage with it and. You wouldn't believe how fast that stuff goes. Once we've made it and cured it, we'll bring it out oh, yeah. to work or whatever, and you slice it up with a cracker, just with a piece of cheese, and we'll no. demolish a whole but eight pound sausage within <laughs> yeah. like twenty four hours. It'll be gone. <laughs> it's nothing. We just chop well, it up. Well, yeah, leave it's it out good. And, well, yeah. I'm excited this week to try the the meat eaters got a recipe for chorizo sausage. So we're gonna oh, nice. dedicate the whole batch of of trimmings this time instead of making you know, burger patties, we're going to make a huge batch of chorizo and hopefully I'll get it right. Um, but yeah, that'll be pretty exciting to be able to make, make our own and then you keep it for paellas and whatever, you know, good stuff. Yeah. Um, for those guys that are listening, what I, what I think is cool about the internet and just social media and everything is that we were able to, you know, guys can find you out there in Australia and find a really good broadhead and, do the internet you can go out there and buy your guys a broadhead for a really good price and get them to you here in the u.s now i mean you that's what's close you can reach worldwide out now and is that have you had a good experience with that adam just with the internet um purchasing and all that stuff yeah so that's kind of what how we how we ended up where you guys are i think i mean we you know we supply a lot of stores here in australia and 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 new zealand as a chain of stores over there we supply and we're just quite happy just sort of chipping along and then with social media um you know guys it's every now and then someone from africa or they're going on an african hunt or somewhere in canada saying hey can you send me a pack of broadheads and it just grew quite quickly with with instagram i think more so than anything um the demand would just got to the stage where we just couldn't you know, we just couldn't keep up shipping, um, especially to the US and a lot of our heavier weight broadheads. So it's been phenomenal to see it grow and how fast it's how fast it's getting traction now. Hence the reason we, we came to the ATA show. It's like we need to find um, outlets in the US. Um, and, and a big thing for me too, being in business, is I'm, I'm a big believer of if, if the US hunting industry is going to support me, and the business, well, what can I do to sort of help out in some way? And selling direct is not helping. It's not helping the the US. Um, how do you want to say it? Like the retail world doesn't doesn't gain anything from me selling a, a, a pack of broadheads from from home. So by being over there, you, you know, and don't do any. I've stopped doing direct sales to to the US. So I had a big sale recently, and, and a bunch of stock went out, but if you want to buy them going forward from this point on in the US, you have to go through a US a dealer. And that, for me, because we've lost our stores here in our local town, we've got 150,000 people and no archery store, like zero, because everyone decided to shop online so much that they just couldn't keep their doors open. Now nobody can get a bow tuned. They can't choose arrows. They can't talk to someone about setting their kids up because they're gone. So, and I know that demographics are a lot more in favour where you guys are, but there's still, you know, I talk to people and say, look, it's not like it used to be. People still buy online and that's just the nature of, of I guess, technology and stuff, but everybody still wants to walk in and pick up a new bow or try on a pair of boots or, you know, check out a, an arrow shaft and without those stores, you can't do that. You can't get the expertise in that. So I guess my way of sort of helping, even though it's only a tiny portion is, okay, well, if, You've got to walk in there to buy broadheads. Well, that's all I can do. You know what I mean? That's my yeah. contribution, I suppose. And on a larger scale, when we sort out 
which outlets will have distributors, etc., in the US. That'll, that's the only place you can, you'll be able to buy these, buy our products. You won't be able to get them online. You'll have to walk into a store the old-fashioned way, talk to someone behind the counter, and and um, you know, while you're there, you might buy some broadheads. You might need a pack of knocks, or you might need some fletching. And that's how these guys. That's 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 how they survive. So. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. That's so pretty cool. How can how can we find out who the the retailers are of your broadheads here in the states? So at the moment on our website, you can you can click on the U.S. flag, and there's at the moment we've got Three Rivers Archery who stock our full range, and TP Outdoors also. Um, and we're just this time of year is when a lot of the distributors and buyers sort out their stock for the coming year. So by the time your hunting season rolls around or by the time you guys are ready to start shooting broadheads, we'll have a, a full list of all the US uh, retailers, all the, everyone that stocks. So it's probably six to eight weeks away with a, with a list of names. But for now, like I said, you can jump on Three Rivers and TP Outdoors and they've got all our gear. Um, Three Rivers will have our new arrow shafts, our heavy GPI wood grain finished arrows in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, so we're heading that way. And like I said, that'll be it for direct. It, it'll be The only way you can buy them over there will be to walk to go into a store or obviously jump on a, a um, an online store from one of the retailers as well. Okay. Well, perfect. Cool, Adam. Um, I appreciate you talking with us. And for guys that are listening, please check out Adam White and his company, Northern Broadhead, on Instagram. And you can find him there. And it, he has a direct link to his uh, online um, shop. And um, we appreciate Adam uh, giving us some time. It was kind of hard to coordinate it, but we, we managed it <laughs> between the different time zones. Yeah, we and and uh, I think you're on, it's already, it's Wednesday there right now already, right? It's yeah, it's actually Wednesday. It's quarter past nine in the morning. Um, yeah, so yeah, I'm still on Tuesday evening <laughs> or Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, that no, was fun, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, you know, it's, it's it's um pretty easy to talk hunting once you start, whether it's broadheads or, or recovering venison or just hunting in general. It's always good to talk to to guys like yourself that are the keen and into it and you know if anyone's ever got any questions just jump on the site or on instagram shoot us a message um we're always happy to chat talk talk shop and talk hunting for sure perfect well thank you very much for the opportunity once again we greatly appreciate it yeah thank you very much adam and remember always know where you stand with onyx maps